Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism and how to celebrate cultural differences. I've been hosting Early Risers for over a year now, and I've started to notice a pattern. I've heard a lot of stories from my guests about feeling caught off guard when young children bring up race in an unexpected way. Maybe it's when a child makes a comment about somebody's skin color being too dark or how they don't want to play with a child of a different race. Or maybe it's when a child has experienced racial bullying or some other kind of racialized incident. These moments can be stressful and intense. So what can we do to respond instead of react or freeze up? A first step is to develop what my guest, Dr. Rosemary Allen, calls a treasure chest of responses. And the reason that you need a treasure chest of responses is because when this happens, it's so shocking. It's so shocking, we become very neutralized and we don't know what to say. So if you don't know what you'll say in these situations before they happen, the moment passes so quickly. Dr. Rosemary Allen is an early childhood education professor and scholar at Metropolitan State University of Denver. She also runs a consulting firm that provides training and guidance around racial equity and inclusion. I first learned about Dr. Allen's work about five years ago when I attended a conference where she was a keynote speaker. I have to admit that I'm something of a fangirl of Dr. Allen's. I appreciate her wealth of knowledge and transparency around how bias and racism show up in early childhood settings. She has been raising awareness about these issues for a really long time, long before terms like implicit bias or anti-racism were part of our everyday conversations. Dr. Allen grew up in Los Angeles in the 1960s, in the years after Brown versus Board of Education. That's when the Supreme Court ruled that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. We started our conversation by talking about Dr. Allen's early education experiences around race in that context. So, Dr. Allen, can you tell me what is your first memory of when an adult or a parent talked to you about race or racism? Oh, that's a really, really good question because it seems like my family have talked about this my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I think my first experience was probably as I went into elementary school. I didn't go to preschool. So mm-hmm. elementary was really my first experience outside of family and probably right. my first experience interacting with white people on a long-term basis. So I do right. remember being told how to behave, mm-hmm. don't embarrass the family, work hard, do your best. And as a little black girl, I have to work twice as hard to get half as 
far. And I just remember mm-hmm. being told um, what the expectations were as a Black child and how I needed to behave because I wouldn't be given the benefit of the doubt. So I would think it about mm-hmm. five years old is my first memory of that. Do you have any recollection of how you received that information, what you thought about it when you were five? How did it affect kind of how you went into that space? Um, yes, I remember being hesitant, being um There was some trepidation because it was an unknown environment first, you know, going to school Mm -hmm. and going all day. Um, I was a beneficiary of Brown versus Board of Education. And people think, oh, in 1954, everything was integrated. No, it was years in the making. And, you know, what happened with Brown versus Board of Education, they just kind of threw us together. At the time, they didn't take Black children out of their environment um, to go to white schools the way they did my younger siblings. But they had white teachers come to the Black schools. And having a white teacher for kindergarten and just feeling like I needed to be on my best behavior, it was this kind of guarded and measured feeling that I was stepping Mm. into this alien territory Mm -hmm. and I couldn't quite be myself. I just had to be measured and I had to be intentional about everything. Well, Let's fast forward a little bit. And now you are a celebrated educator and you do um, a lot of education to educators, early childhood educators. And so, like, I know your children are adults, but when they were younger, how did you talk to them about race and racism? Oh, Diane, you know, it's really amazing because even though I went to school and I had a white teacher, I grew up in a black neighborhood. And I went to Mm -hmm. Black churches and I was part of Black organizations. And when Mm we um, moved here to Colorado, my children now, all of a sudden, and myself, we were thrown Mm -hmm. into this predominantly white neighborhoods. They went to predominantly white schools where they were one Mm -hmm. of the only, my daughter was the only Black child in each of her high school classes. So the only Black girl in ninth grade, only Black girl in 10th grade. So we had to have the conversations with her very early. When she started kindergarten, we had the talk with her about being a Black girl, the same talk my parents had with me. But what Mm -hmm. was very interesting was that I had to have that talk with my son earlier. And it Mm. absolutely broke my heart. I had to start talking to him about being a Black boy at three, because he was in this predominantly white area, this feeling that he could do what his white friends could do. And Mm -hmm. we began to see very early, and we know that's a reality in life, that you could have a black boy and a white boy doing exactly the same things and the black boy would be reprimanded. Yeah. So this started um, yes. when he was three. He, my daughter was a cheerleader. She was um, at a high school football game. And right before the field was just a patch of grass where all the little kids would just go and flip and run mm-hmm. and run around. Mm-hmm. And we saw the security guard watching my son. At three. At three. We caught him up and said, you just sit here with us. And he goes, no, I want to play. I want to play. And I said, you know, we don't want you to play because we don't want anyone to say something to you. But they're Mm -hmm. playing. And this is the dilemma of Black parents. When do you break your child's heart? 
Yeah. And then we yeah. we had to have the talk. You know, son, you're a black boy. You're going to be targeted because of the color of your skin. And while no one's supposed to be playing there, we have to follow rules in ways some people don't. And my husband said, let him play. And I said, well, I just want you to be careful. If a grown-up says something to you, you just come right up here. And we're watching him. Diane is like divine intervention. He goes down there Hmm. and plays. He starts flipping. And the security guard went right over there to him. Mm, mm, mm. You're not supposed to be flipping. You're not supposed to be playing. And we just brought him up. Said, come on Mm. up. So, and, And that began to happen more and more in his life. And he saw it more. It was very, very interesting that he seemed to be targeted earlier and more frequently than my daughter was. Mm. Interesting. And I have all boys. So Mm -hmm. I know a little bit about what you're talking about and have experienced similar things. Mm -hmm. And research Um, bears it out. Black boys are just, they're surveilled more. They're under surveillance just about everywhere they go. From very young. From very young. Yeah, to have that happen to your three-year-old, you're absolutely right, is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But I, I like how you, even though it's hard to have those conversations, the way you phrased it to him was um, very elegant (laughs) and in a way that I think he could understand. And when you do your trainings, I understand you talk about how parents need to have a treasure chest of responses. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you say that, you're talking about probably both when your child has experienced some kind of a microaggression. Mm-hmm. But this is true for both white parents and black parents mm-hmm. or or parents of color. Now, what you say might be different, but having that treasure chest, I would imagine, is the same for all parents. Can yes. you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And the reason that you need a treasure chest of responses is because when this happens, it's so shocking. It's so shocking, we become very neutralized and we don't know what to say. So if you don't Mm -hmm. know what you'll say in these situations before they happen, the moment passes so quickly. Before you know it is gone and you, have you ever been in a situation where you wished you had a rewind button? Yes. You think about (laughs) your answer and you go, I wish I could go back and say it. So prepare to say it beforehand. And like you said, it's for all parents, for um, white parents, when their child says, I don't want to play with them because they're brown. What Mm -hmm. do you say? So right now, prepare your responses. Prepare your responses and say, underneath that brown skin, he's just like you and me. And we get to Mm -hmm. know people based on who they are. And we had to have it, especially with my son and my daughter, because there were so many microaggressions. There was one time, again, three, he was very tall for three, but you Mm -hmm. know about adultification that black boys are thought to be four and a half years older than they are, even with teachers who know child development. Yes. So when your child is three or four and you have boys, so I'm sure you experienced this, and you go to a place like the mall and you have Mm -hmm. to decide, what do I do with them while I go to the restroom? Thank goodness Mm -hmm. for family restrooms now. But back then they didn't have them. So I took him into the ladies restroom with me and I told him to stand right here in front of the stall until I come out. So I'm in the stall and here comes a woman 
what are you doing in here? This is a ladies' restroom. You're not supposed to be in here. And I said, just a minute, he's with me. He is my son. He's four years old and he's with his mom. But this is a woman's bathroom. And I just had to be very intentional. He is with his mother. Mm-hmm. I need you to stand down and do what you came here to do. But when we left, I had to have that conversation with him again. You know, because you're a boy and because you're a black boy and because you're tall, people think you're older. And just having those ready comments, those ready responses. And the other reason that black parents really need them is because we have to make sure when we respond, we respond in a way that the child doesn't internalize it. Yes, that they oh, don't that's so important. think it's their fault. Like he was thinking, I shouldn't have been in the ladies' bathroom and I'm a boy and what did I do wrong? But to really help them understand that some people just see the color of their skin and they judge them. And, and I always say, and that's their problem. That's not mm. your problem. When you think about white parents, too, like when they have a young child, for instance, and let's say they're out with their child at the park and their child may or may not be used to interacting with other children of color. And Mm -hmm. let's say they start to run towards the swings or whatever, and then they stop and they (laughs) see a group of brown children or black children and they run back to their parent looking scared or whatever. What can that parent say to that young three or four-year-old? I think the, the greatest thing a parent can do is to help that child enter into that play space. One of the things that I've done, I've taught my children to be play initiators because we had Mm. that a lot. We had that children are playing and then all of a sudden what you described is exactly what would happen. The white child would stop like, oh my goodness, what do I do? So what I've done on my end was taught my child to be a play initiator. That's really not based on race, but it happens to invite everybody in. So whenever I saw it, I said, oh, it looks like that guy wants to play with you. He might be a little shy. Why don't you go over there and talk to him or bring him over or show him your toy? So I would advise white families to do the same thing, that when their Mm. child is hesitant, because they've not had a lot of interaction, I want to be very clear that that hesitation is very natural in childhood, in children. It's something different. It's something new. Just encourage your child that it's okay. Walk your child over if you need to. Say, hey, that looks like a nice person. Let's go find out what their name is. You know, those kinds of things. And to help them to become play initiators, especially if they're showing fear of children of color. I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Rosemarie Allen. She's a nationally recognized leader around racial equity in early childhood education. 
I spoke with Dr. Allen a few days after Katanji Brown-Jackson became the first Black woman to be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. During Jackson's confirmation hearings, Texas Senator Ted Cruz asked her about the children's book, Anti-Racist Baby. It's by Ibram X. Kendi, and the book is taught at a private school where Jackson serves as a trustee. Do, do, do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist? Senator, I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. That exchange got a lot of media attention. To me, it reveals a huge misunderstanding around how children actually learn about race and racism. Babies are not racist, but they pick up spoken and unspoken cues from the environment about race, including the implicit biases and preferences of the adults around them. And that can eventually lead to racist attitudes as they grow up. I mentioned this incident from Justice Jackson's confirmation hearings to Dr. Allen, and I asked her to explain how children aren't born racist, but instead start to learn about racism in relationship with adults. What we have to understand is that Black families talk about race very early in a child's life, and it's part of our conversations almost daily because it's part of our survival and making sure our Mm -hmm. children do well and also to counter racism that they will experience living in America. For white families, their skin serves as a barrier of protection, so they don't have to talk about it so often. But that doesn't mean that children are not aware of race very early. And what we know is that babies, infants, are aware of race starting at about three months when they Mm -hmm. begin to prefer the same race caregiver. And by the time they're two and a half, they begin to categorize people based on race. And when you think about Mm -hmm. it, Diane, it's so typical. They're categorizing everything based on how it looks. Shapes. That's how children learn. Yeah. That's how they learn. Shapes and colors and people and hair and height. So what Mm -hmm. happens then as they're categorizing based on skin color, they're picking up adult cues about race. Mm -hmm. Children know very early in their early childhood classrooms who's preferred, who's not, who gets in trouble, who doesn't, who the teacher Mm -hmm. likes, what color skin tone. They notice when you go to the supermarket who you ask for help. So Mm -hmm. uh, many, many times there can be people of color working at a supermarket. And if a white family is looking for the white person to ask for help, Mm. is sending this message to children that the other helpers don't matter. And it happens also in elementary classrooms where 80% of the teacher workforce is white. And the only time children see people of color is serving them. You're my bus Mm. driver, you're my cafeteria worker, you're my janitor. So you serve me 
And the only people who have authority or who may be equal to me are white people. So do you see how Mm -hmm. we condition children in terms of race and in terms of who's valued and who's not? And we already know that black boys starting at eight months old are the most suspended children in America. So white children see black children as disposable. You get in trouble and you're gone. Mm -hmm. So they know Mm. very early who's valued and who's not. Mm. And I think what's real interesting about what you said is that we are conditioning children, but we don't realize we're doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, like the the example you gave of a, a family going into the grocery store, they may not even realize that they're looking for the white person to ask a question to. Um, It's just so ingrained, you don't even think about it. You don't at all. It's just really amazing how so much of our behavior we've been socialized into and we don't know. Just a quick story, if you don't mind. My husband Mm -hmm. grew up in the segregated South. He actually grew up with white and colored signs. So that's his Mm -hmm. background. But here we are again in Colorado. He takes my son sledding. And I'm from California, so I'd rather not go. But my son, please, mommy, (laughs) go sledding. So I go and I... I noticed this odd behavior in my husband. My son would um, go down the hill, but as he's mm-hmm. coming back, my husband would say, Clarence, watch out. Clarence, be careful. Clarence, move out of the way. And I noticed that the first time coming up and I thought, I wonder why he's doing that. So the second time it happened and I'm thinking mm-hmm. something about it was very uncomfortable for me. So the okay. third time he went down, I said, when he comes up, please don't say his name. Let him come up on his own. So when mm-hmm. we got home, we had the discussion. I said, you know, I noticed you were doing that. And I'm just wondering why, you know, where where did that come from? He said, well, I didn't want him to get hurt. You know, people were sledding down the hill and I didn't want him to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I said, let me tell you my interpretation that he was being made to feel like he was a guest in his own park that he was Mm -hmm. a guest. And I said, did you notice there wasn't a single white person who told their child to watch out for him? But somehow Mm -hmm. he had to be very careful of the white children coming down the hill. And and it was just very curious to me. So my husband's a reflector. And the next morning he woke up, he said, I need to talk to you. He said, when I was growing up, if a white person was walking down the sidewalk, we had to step off the curb to let them pass by. He said, my entire youth, I had to get out of the way of white people. But what I didn't know until you pointed it out to me, that I was teaching my son the same thing, the exact Mm. same thing. And that was just so powerful. He didn't know. So we have to ask ourselves when we talk about our ways of being and our unhealed trauma. So he was still Mm -hmm. dealing with this trauma response of getting out of the way of white people. But we also, Diane, have to ask, are white people still expecting us to get out of the way for them? Mm. Oh, that's good. Because it's two ways. Stop putting the microscope on people of color. We have all been traumatized. And is this why little Black children are getting in so much trouble? Because that trauma response is that you get out of my way, you do what I say, you defer to me because of that unhealed generational trauma for whites 
as well as for Blacks. You talk about what's happening in the classroom, and I want to talk a little bit about that because you actually do a lot of work. And actually, that's how I first came in contact with you is that you were doing a training at a national conference that I attended, and you were training people about how racism shows up in the classroom. Can you talk a little bit about that? How do we create anti-racist classrooms or anti-racist environments? It's so important. And thank you for such a great question. And you touched on it. The the first thing we have to do is acknowledge bias. Mm -hmm. Acknowledge that we are all biased. None of us ask for it. We don't want it. We've inherited it because we breathe biased air. We drink biased water. It's in us. So when we come with that lens, then we can bring this implicit bias to the surface. Mm. And you've probably heard my steps is when you are in a situation, I want you to first stop. Stop because we have to disrupt bias where it lives in that moment. Mm -hmm. Stop. Notice. So, for instance, there is a Hispanic child, little boy running around the classroom, Mm -hmm. just running around from center to center. Mm -hmm. And it's driving you nuts. Stop. Okay. This is driving me nuts. (laughs) Notice. It's driving me nuts because he's disrupting the classroom. Wonder why. Hmm. And this is the hard part. Because when you wonder why, you have to look at the entire landscape. Why is he getting on my nerves. Hmm. Look around the classroom. Oh, wait a minute. There are three other boys running around the classroom. Mm -hmm. Why is that one the one that was brought to my attention? And then stop your behavior. Yes. Stop, notice, wonder why, and change your behavior right there in the moment. That if running around the classroom is not okay, it's not okay for those three little boys, and neither is it okay for this boy. Right. So we disrupted in the process. And then, Diane, to be aware of some daily acts of bias in our classrooms, to be aware of um, how we mispronounce children's names mm. regularly, how we change names, shorten names, mm. make fun of names. Because if you're you have a child named Sashiko and you wonder, why did that parent name their child that name? and you say, that's just too hard, I'm going to call this child Sasha, Mm -mm. then at that moment, you have taken away that child's humanity Mm -hmm. and their identity. So you never see them as fully human. And I know this sounds like a stretch, Mm -mm. but you name what you own, and you don't own this child. That's right. And, And acts of bias is being afraid of the neighborhood where you work. But now what I teach teachers is that Schools are in neighborhoods, and those schools were in that neighborhood long before you ever got there. Mm -hmm. If you're afraid of the neighborhood, you're afraid of the community. And if you're afraid of the community, community is made up of families. Mm -hmm. You're afraid of the families. And when you're afraid of the families and the community, you're afraid of 
that child's uncles and aunties and grandparents, and then their support systems, their parents, their barbers, the deli guy who gives them a dollar for their report card when they get A's. You fear that entire community. And then what you do, you come into that school or that child care facility and you create your own space. And I call it a white space. Hmm. And you set up your own rules because now you feel like you have to tame these children that you're basically afraid of. And then you say, my school and my classroom, my rules. Hmm. In essence, it's their classroom and their school. Mm -hmm. And the rules should be the same rules that the children have at home. So when you create an anti-bias classroom, you're working with the families and you are replicating the cultural ways of being of that child, family, and community into your classroom and you're honoring them. You know, in the Mm -hmm. Black community, we talk about Black boy joy and Black girl magic. When you're looking at your classrooms, are you seeing Black boy joy, Brown boy joy, Black girl magic, brown girl magic. Do they see themselves in the classroom? Are you honoring who they are? Or do they have to be measured and change who they are to be accepted? So be aware of some of the daily acts of bias. Be aware of how children interact with each other. One of the things that happens all day, every day in early childhood spaces and educational spaces is that white children are given authority over black bodies. Mm. And we have to pay attention to that. Pay attention to who the play initiators are, who's giving out roles, something so simple as who's playing in the dramatic play area and who decides who's going to be the dog, Hmm. who's going to be the mommy, Who's going to be the daddy? And is that same child the same child who's doing it all day, every day? Are they the tattlers? Are they the surveillers? Are they always telling children of color what they can and cannot do? Mm -hmm. So we have to pay attention to those interactions. And they're very hard because they've been racially socialized Mm -hmm. to be an authority. So you don't always see it. Yeah. Well, we are uh, just about at time. And so I just want to say thank you again, Dr. Allen, for spending all of this time with me, for uh, dropping your wisdom, and for really all of the work that you do to bring uh, implicit bias issues, anti-racism into the classroom, especially during a time when, as we are witnessing, a lot of this work is being attacked And so I appreciate your continuing in this work and and bringing such great wisdom to the early childhood field, you know, around all these issues. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. If I can just say that, and you brought up something Mm -hmm. we didn't go too deeply into, this work is being attacked. Yes. You know, and people are calling it critical race theory. And it's become this umbrella of anything that has to do with race and bias and equity. I want us to think about reframing it. So for those of you who are listening, when you hear people say, well, isn't that critical race theory? Should we be talking about this? It's not critical race theory. It's American history. And it has shaped who we are today. That's right. And when we frame it as American history, we should all be talking about our history. Because if we don't learn from it, then we're going to repeat it. And we don't want to repeat this. We want to learn from it. 
Dr. Rosemary Allen is an associate professor in the School of Education at Metropolitan State University of Denver. She's also founder, president, and CEO of the Center for Equity and Excellence, a consulting firm specializing in racial equity and inclusion. Dr. Allen shared a wonderful list of tools with me, including specific children's books she loves, as well as other titles for adults. Dr. Allen has authored two children's books about black hair, Stylish and Straight and Cute and Curly. We've posted links to these books and others she recommends on our website, along with a discussion guide for this episode. Look for that at npr.org backslash early risers. While you're there, you can listen to all of our past episodes and subscribe to this podcast. We are on social media. Follow us at Podcast Early on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And for more tips and resources on how to talk with young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org. Early Risers is hosted by me, Diane Halsey. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our senior producer is Nancy Rosenbaum. Katie DeSalle is our social media manager. Sound mixing by Rachel Breeze. Kavias Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. As always, a special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>